Well, it's good to be with you all. It's uh, great to be with you at the campuses at Waterford and Lake Mary and to the guys and girls in 33rd. I'm so glad uh, that you are part of our family. And I'm so glad as a family we get to look at uh, the story of God. We get to look at a story that talks about where we came from, how everything was made, and, and a story that tells us what went wrong, and then a story that tells us about Jesus who comes into the story in order to right all that's been wronged. And if this story is true, if this great, huge story of God is true, then that changes us. It changes the way we live in our story. So last week, we started by looking at what existed before the beginning of the story. We started last week by looking at the author of the story because what you know and understand about the author affects the way you interpret the story. And we saw that the author uh, is God, which means that we are all a well-written, intentional story authored by the greatest writer of all time and even before time and after time. We saw that at the core of our author is love because God has always existed as one God and three persons. He's always existed in relationship. That means that the whole story, the whole creation came about out of an abundance of love. So that means that the core of every one of our stories is love. And we also looked and saw how our author is not one who just sits back and watches what happens, but he's an author that gets his hands dirty that he enters into the story, that we have an author who moves into chaos to create order and an author who moves into darkness to give light. So now, knowing all that, we begin by looking at the actual content of the story. And we start with looking at the setting of the story. Genesis 1, creation. Now, before we kind of jump into that, I feel like we should at least talk about some of the obvious issues that come up when you read Genesis 1. Um, and, and, and that being, when you read Genesis 1, um, especially if you're unfamiliar with church and you didn't grow up in church, some questions come to mind. Like, well, what does this have to say about evolution? Is the Bible claiming that, that these are a literal 24-hour days? In order to believe the Bible, must I reject science? We talked about this a little bit last week, but um, it's important to remember when you're reading the Bible, you have to ask the question, what was the author originally intending to say? And who was the author originally speaking to? We have to be real careful not to read our own current issues into, into the Bible, into what the author is actually saying. So last week I told you that the theory that I learned in high school from my Bible teacher uh, was that Genesis was written by Moses at a time in which the Israelites were um, in the wilderness waiting to enter into the promised land. And that the book of Genesis, and especially this creation account, was Moses communicating to God's people that leaving Egypt and entering the promised land, entering Canaan, was God's design and purpose for them. If you remember my illustration, leave Egypt, enter Canaan. And so that's one theory. Now, there's other theories about Genesis because th those books are so old. There are all kinds of different ideas about who actually pieced these books together. Um, but I'm pretty sure that nobody has put a theory out there that when Genesis was put together, the person was trying to figure out how to combat evolution, that that wasn't even on anyone's mind. So now throughout the centuries, and at least the last couple centuries, there have been Christians who understood Genesis 1 as being literal 24-hour days. And there have been Christians 
who love Jesus and have a high regard for God's word who have not seen it that way. Let me kind of explain that. Um, there's a large uh, part of the scripture that is historical prose narrative. Right. You read you begin reading the Gospel of Luke. And at the very beginning of Luke, Luke tells you, I've I've went to all these eyewitnesses. I've asked them questions so that I can give you an accurate and orderly account of the life of Jesus. So as you're reading Luke, you know that this is a historical prose that Luke is writing. But you open up the Psalms and you're reading poetry, you're reading songs. And we know that it's songs because of its strophic nature and strophic just meaning repetition and the refrains. And there's also parallelism. Parallelism. Uh, in the Hebrew poetry, there was always parallelism, patterns, and repetition. And so as you're reading the Bible, you know you're encountering all different kinds of genres, and that should affect the way you read it. There's some parts that are poetic, in which case you can't take them literally, and then there's some parts that are historical prose narrative. Now, Genesis 2 reads like an account of something that happened. But as you heard Genesis 1 read, it's strophic. It's repetitious. It's pattern over and over again. He said, and it was. He saw, and it was good. It was evening and morning. There are refrains. There are patterns. It is not the same as a historic narrative like Genesis 2. So some Christians believe that Genesis 1 is not a history of exactly what God did and how he did it, but rather a song about what God has done. And that the history part doesn't start until Genesis 2. And there are plenty of examples of this in the Bible. In Exodus 14, you have the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 15, you have Miriam's song where she's reflecting on that event. And in Judges, Judges 4, um, you have an account of the Israelites fighting the Assyrians and defeating the general Sisera. And then in Judges 5 is Deborah's song where she sings about it. And it's a song. She says this, the stars came and fought against Sisera. Now we don't literally believe that the stars actually came and fought, right? It's a song. We read it that way. So there's some that believe that in Genesis 1, it's a song about creation and Genesis 2 is what actually happened. That's one view. Now there's another view. This view says that though Genesis 1 is strophic, it doesn't have parallelism. And so although parts of it seem like poetry, parts of it do not. And so therefore it should be read as a literal 24 hour days. Now, here at Summit, if you were to become a partner, which if you're not, and this is your church home, I would love for you to become a partner because we want you. We want you to be all in. But if you come to partnership class, we'll spend a little bit of time talking about our theology. And one of the things we say is there's not many theological hills that we'll die on. And the reason being, uh, we hold unity up so high because we think Jesus does. We think when Jesus was here on earth, he talked so much about there being unity amongst his people and that the way in which we love each other, especially when we disagree, is such a testimony to who God is and the goodness of God. And so unless you cannot agree with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we're probably not going to die on that theological hill. So where, wherever you fall, as far as your view of creation, that's not one of the hills we're going to die on. But if you ask me where I stand, I would say what I said last week, that I believe when God speaks, chaos becomes a cosmos. Then when things come under the, the authority of God's word, they go from a state of order to disorder. And that's what I think Genesis 1 is communicating. So if tomorrow it's proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that the earth is millions of years old, that will not change my belief that God created it all and that the Bible is his word.
That being said, I believe in a literal Adam. I believe that Genesis 2 is history. I believe that from that point on, uh, in those first chapters of Genesis, that it's history. And, and I believe that because of the way Paul talks about Adam. And if you were here over the summer, we spent some time in Romans. And in Romans 5, Paul talks about the first Adam and then the second Adam being Christ. And he talks about what the first Adam did and what the second Adam did and how what they did affected all of humankind. And so for that reason, I believe you have to believe in a literal Adam. But that's not really what I want to talk about. Uh, but I feel like it's important for us to talk about. And I hope if you're in a connect group, you'll continue having that discussion. But what I want us to look at is what this creation story tells us about the story we're living and how it points us to the story that we're called to be a part of. And the first thing, the thing that stands out, I mean, especially even just hearing it read all in one sitting over and over again, you hear it is good. It's good. God saw and it was good. God saw everything and it was good. Most religion from the beginning of time in some form has rejected material creation. Eastern religions say that the world is unreal, that, that the physical world is unreal, that it's illusion, that someday it will just fade away. In Western religions like that of the Greeks and the Romans, they said the world is bad that the body is bad, that the material world is bad, that the spirit is noble and virtuous and good, but anything that's physical is bad. Islam says that paradise is a spiritual world, that we will leave this physical world. And now sometimes Christians can fall into this view. Uh, and, and, and this happens a lot, especially in kind of the theological camp that I grew up in and, and that I probably am pretty close to. Um, and this happens for us when we begin the story in Genesis 3 with the fall of man instead of Genesis 1. Because in Genesis 1, over and over again, God says it's good. The story of God begins by telling us that this world, this world that we're a part of, it's not a world to try to escape. It's not, I'll fly away one day. This world, this material world, this creation, us as part of the creation are all good. In the story, you have a God who literally gets his hands dirty. He gets down in the dust and the dirt to form man. Genesis 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. See, this is unheard of in other religions. This is so unlike any other meta-narratives. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, says that it was intellectually revolutionary for the book of Genesis to say that the material world is good. Okay, great. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? How does believing in the goodness of creation affect the story that we're living? Whenever I officiate a wedding, I, I usually talk about Jesus's first miracle, which took place at a wedding. Why is Jesus's first miracle? his first sign? Why was Jesus's first public sign of ministry, not raising someone from the dead, not healing a leper, not uh, giving sight to some blind man? Why was it throwing a much bigger and better party? His first miracle was turning water into incredibly good booze. And it was booze. It was not grape juice. And, uh, and for my Baptist friends out there, this is a hill that I might die on. Summit won't die on it, but I'll die on it. And not because I love alcohol, because I actually I don't, but because I think it says something very significant about this world and God's relationship with us. 
See, Jesus chooses as his first miracle, turning water into wine, turning a party that's about to crash and die. It's, gonna about, it's about to get really awkward. And you've been to one of those parties where it just like, it's so awkward to be there and you, you wish you weren't there. He turns that kind of party into a party that thousands of years later, you and I are still saying, y'all, that wedding that Jesus came to was on fleek. You know, that look up Urban Dictionary if you need to know what that means. Um, but, that, but, but that was the first thing. That was the first display of Jesus and his ministry was this, was this event. So why would Jesus do that? Because I believe Jesus was showing us here that his ministry was about bringing the kingdom on earth here as it is in heaven. That he was showing us that, that the good things that we experience now are only a taste of what will one day be. In Isaiah 25, we read, one day the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. One day he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. See, what Jesus is doing with this first miracle is he's saying, I'm the maker of the universe. Through me, all of creation came to being. So that's why when I snap my, my fingers, I can turn water into wine. But that's nothing. Because what I am going to do, I'm going to preside over the greatest feast. I am the Lord of the feast. And if we get this, if we understand this, that, that creation is good, that what God has created is good, then there is a profound motivation for playfulness. As Christians, our stories should not be boring and perpetually solemn. They should be filled with play because what God has made is good. And I tell the bride and the groom, I said, this day, this beautiful wedding day, this beautiful ceremony, the amazing party that we're about to have, your marriage is just a glimpse of the beauty and the joy that awaits us. So that means you can enjoy it. You don't have to take yourself so seriously. You can show each other tremendous amounts of grace because you don't, this isn't it. This doesn't have to be the perfect marriage. It just has to point you to the perfect marriage. And see, when you realize what's coming, when you realize that a great kiss or a delicious meal or a beautiful sunset are just dim hints of what we're going to have eternally, then we can enjoy them. We can delight in them. We can play. Now, many religions, especially ancient religions, like I said, say this world isn't real. And if you want to get spiritual, you need to do without. You need to not enjoy. Pleasure isn't good for you. In fact, it's corrupting. And you might be thinking, well, okay, but that's not really our problem. Like American culture, like we're not a culture of denial, right? If anything, kind of secularism, which we're living in, which is a big part of our culture, it isn't an anti-materialistic culture. It's, it's pretty much only materialistic. It's a type of hedonism where we constantly live in a culture that says, this is all we have. So you better, you better live it up. You better live for all the money and all the sex and all the pleasure and all the power. But here is where the story of God, as we look into creation, we see that the story of God is not kind of this stoic removal from the world, but it's also not this overindulgent hedonism. 
It neither says the material world is bad or that this is all you have. Who said it was good? It was God, right? God looked at what he created and then God attributed worth to it. Over and over again, God said it was good because God is the most important thing in the story. In the beginning, God. In him, everything finds its meaning and being. God gives everything its worth. All right, so how does that balance out kind of this playfulness that should come from our acknowledging the goodness of creation? Well, Mark 2, there's a story of a, of a man, a paralytic man, who was brought to Jesus to be healed. In fact, the very first time I ever heard Isaac Hunter teach, which if you're new to Summit, Isaac was one of our founding pastors along with John Parker. First time I heard him teach was on, uh, on this passage. I was a student in high school and he came in to speak at chapel uh, and he did a great job of telling it. I remember thinking like, I want to learn from this guy. But he talked about, if you remember the story, it's like these four bros have this one bro who's a paralytic and they're trying to carry him to go see Jesus because they hear that Jesus can heal you. And so they're, you know, they're making the journey and it's probably a mile, two miles, who knows how long. And then they get to the house and there's just people everywhere and there's no way to get into where Jesus is. And so they devise a plan to somehow get up on the roof with their par paralytic friend. And then when they get up on the roof, they cut a hole in it and then they have to figure out how in the world they're going to lower him down without just dropping him, plummeting him to the ground. And they do all that. They get him before Jesus. And then Jesus looks at the man and he says, I see your faith. And I want you to know your sins are forgiven. And you know, those bros were like, dude, we, we did not just, I mean, that's great. Thank you. But like, that's not why we came. We didn't come all this way. We didn't figure out how to get up on the roof. We didn't figure out how to get him down to you for you to just tell him his sins are forgiven. We, we want the dude to walk, right? But what Jesus is doing there is he, he's looking at this paralytic man and he's saying, I'm giving you what you most need. Because at your core, what you most need is relationship with God. Because at the beginning of the story, God. Because it's God who continues to give what is being created its worth. It's only God that can declare that something is good. Now, sin separates us from God. And I know we haven't gotten to that part of the story yet. We still got another chapter uh, before we get to that part of the story. But it's sin that keeps us from hearing God's voice. And so Jesus is looking at this paralytic man and he's saying, your sins are forgiven. And what he's telling him is he's declaring to this man his worth before God. To you and I, whatever story we're living, we're constantly looking for worth and affirmation. Now, some of us do a better job of hiding that that's what we're looking for, but we are. We're working really hard because we're hoping that we'll get just the enough, we'll get enough affirmation in our jobs but you know, you never get enough. There's always more you could do. There's, there's always, you never quite get to that place where you can just kind of, okay, I can rest now. Or we're looking for it from our loved ones. We're, we're expecting our kids to, to validate our existence or, or our wife to tell us of our worth or, or our parents or, or someone else. We're constantly looking for people to give us worth and affirmation. But listen, we'll never get enough. We'll never get praised enough for our looks or our grades or our talents because we were designed to get our worth from the infinite, yet we keep trying to find it through the finite. And that's what you see in this creation story, this finite, I mean, this infinite, this eternal God. 
bestows worth on his creation again and again and again. And if, if there's anything that is separating us from his voice, then it won't be enough because that's, the, that's, that's what we were designed to hear. We were designed to get our worth from, from, the, from the infinite. So, so there's this balance. There's this balance that we see in the creation story that should affect the way we live our stories. On one side, we see the goodness of creation. But at the same time, we see its finiteness. And that means that we can enjoy the things that are here, but yet we can walk away from them. We can lose them and still be okay. So go and make money. Go make lots of money. You can do great things if you make lots of money. You can tithe. We'd love that. That'd be great. But if you don't, it's okay. I have God. Work really hard at your jobs. Try to advance. Try to, try to be the best employee that you can be. Try to, try to work your way up the ladder. But if it doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to, it's okay. You have God. Try, try, to, try to pursue uh, relationships. Try to, try to go out and seek crazy adventures. Try to live life to the fullest. But if it doesn't turn out the way you want it, oh well, I have God. You know who had this balanced view? Hobbits. Listen carefully to what J.R.R. Tolkien says about them in his intro. He says this, they had mouths apt to laughter and to eating and drinking and laugh they did and eat and drink often heartily, six meals a day when they could get them. Nonetheless, ease and peace had left this people still curiously tough. They were, if it came to it, difficult to daunt or to kill. Now, why is that? Why were hobbits so strong? Well, he goes on to say this. They were perhaps so unwearingly fond of good things, not least because they could, when put to it, do without them and could survive rough handling by grief, foe, or weather in a way that astonished those who did not know them well and looked no further than their bellies and their well-fed faces. Do you hear that? Hobbits love to laugh. They love to party. They love food and drink six times a day if they can get it. But if you take it away from them, they're okay. They're so fond of them because they can do without them. What Tolkien is actually doing is drawing because he had a really strong understanding of creation and it was deeply Christian. He, he was drawing a picture of people very attractive because they had a robust understanding of creation, of its goodness and its finiteness. There's one last thing I want to talk about creation. God so loved creation. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the cosmos that he gave, that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save it. He was so committed to what he had created that God gave, that God, God was willing to give his son. Jesus was willing to come and, and put on flesh and live the life that you and I were designed to live and die the death that we deserve. Why? So that we could have new life, so that this creation could be restored, so it could be recreated, so that sin and brokenness would not define our stories, so that someday he could res resurrect us and create a new heaven and a new earth. But what about now? What does that mean for our stories? Well, Genesis 1 ends 
with God saying, let us create man in our own image. Let us make man like us and, and let us put him above everything else. Let's give him dominion. Let's allow him to be a part of the creative process that will continue. And so as you and I encounter a world that's very different from Genesis 1 because of what happens in Genesis 3, we have a very important role to play as image bearers. C.S. Lewis said in response to suffering, particularly cancer, he said this, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and taste and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. Because the world is real, because God is committed to it. You and I, when we see poverty, when we see disease, when we see death, when we see hopelessness, when we see people living boring stories who don't know how to play well, when we see people who are living like this is all there is, we have to do something. We should be as much about re- um, redeeming this world as God is. That's our role as image bearers. So what you do matters. And, and what you do for your work matters. I mean, and not just for your story, but for the story of God, for the story of God's kingdom, on the story of it being on earth as it is in heaven. A number of years ago, my counselor asked me a very helpful question that I, I, I go back to over and over again. She said, what need has God most fashioned your heart to meet? And I remember when she asked me that question, I didn't really, I didn't know the answer to it, but it, it sent me on a, a journey to try to figure that out. What need has God most fashioned your heart to meet? Have you spent time looking at your work in light of the story of God, in light of the fact that you're an image bearer of God and, and God's desire is to, to redeem all of creation and he's called you to be a part of that work. Have you thought about that? Some things that are helpful, these aren't the answer, but these are helpful. Taking steps and, and doing things like NiceServe or going to Africa or being a part of a Summit Connect group, those are avenues in which you can begin to explore what God maybe had in mind when he thought you up. And it's important that you have feedback from people, that you allow other people to speak in your life because sometimes you don't even see it. Sometimes someone else will say, hey, your eyes always light up when we talk about this. I have a buddy who uh, 10 years ago, we started in a group together and it was obvious to all of us in that very first year that he was made to be a coach. Like he just was. The way he cared um, about, uh, about kids and especially young men and boys and, and that they would understand kind of teamwork and, and value and, and that they would be um, 
encouraged to kind of live better stories. Like you could just see that on his face. But, you know, he was always thinking, well, I don't, you know, that's not really practical because I'm, he couldn't figure out a way to like make a living doing that. And for 10 years, I've seen him do all kinds of jobs. Like he's been all over the place. And every time he talks about things that relate to coaching, his face lights up. So for 10 years, we've been telling him that. Um, and, and just this last year, he coached my oldest, Oliver, in football. And, and y'all, I, I can't tell you, um, I don't think anything has affected my son's life as much as having Jake as his coach. My son is now living a better story because Jake did that. But it's taken him a long time to kind of live into that. And it took a lot of people walking alongside him and telling him, like, this, this is... This is something that God's given you. So what need has God most wired your heart to meet? Do you know the answer to that? If you don't, come be a part. We'll figure it out together. So in the creation story, we see the goodness of it. We see the goodness which tells us that we should enjoy that we should thank God for all the goodness that is here in this creation, that it's not something to move away from. It's not something to want to separate ourselves from, but it's something we should move into. We should be the most fun people. But because of its finiteness, because we know that ultimately our worth comes from God and what he says about us, we can do without. We don't have a lot of needs And because we see God's heart for creation, we go to the mat to fight against injustice and poverty and hopelessness and boringness. See, that's the story that we've been invited into. That's the story that's been set up. And that's the part that's been written for us to play. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you uh, that the book, that the story did not start with the problem, but it started with telling us that we're good, that what you've created is good, that what you've created is worth fighting for. And Father, I pray that as we think about that, as we think about the goodness of creation, that we would play, that we would move uh, towards life and life abundantly. Father, I thank you uh, that ultimately you are what matters. What you say about us is what matters. And you, because of Jesus, have said that you will never leave us or forsake us. That because Jesus was obedient, there is no condemnation for us. And Father, I thank you that you are using us to bring about hope and restoration to all that's lost. So Father, whatever it is, whatever whatever need you fashioned each of our hearts to meet, may we see that more clearly. Open up opportunities and avenues for us to discover what that is so that we can see your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.